one of my favorite proverbs in the book of Proverbs, and it appears in a number of times in slightly different wording. Um, and this actually may be, we're going to start a new series. We're almost done here with the book of Acts. We're in Acts 27. And uh, we have two weeks left, one, two weeks left, two weeks left. And then we're going to start in on Proverbs um, and, and have a, a couple of the smaller series um, through the end of the year. And then we're going to probably move to Revelation in the spring. But um, in that in, in the Proverbs series, I'm not just going to walk through the book. I'm going to pick maybe I can't remember if it's 10, um, seven to 10 different themes. I can't remember how many weeks we have devoted to it, but um, just preach on a different cluster of verses, all of which have the same theme for that week. And, and I, this may be this this proverb and this theme may be one of those that I choose but to expand on. But um, just to start this little talk out here with it. That um, has very much to do, obviously, with with the text here in Acts 27. The, um, when it goes well, this is Proverbs 11:10. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices, and the wicked, and when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. So, so what's the? Uh, it's, it's a straightforward enough proverb. What what is Solomon saying there? He's saying that look, the city has a party when the righteous, when the, when the righteous man or woman succeeds and is prospering. In contrast, when the wicked, um, when the wicked don't prosper but but die, perish, they're, when they're undone, then there's also a party. <laughs> Another way to put that, and I think that the other proverbs will sometimes flip it and say it this way: um, the city the city rejoices when the righteous flourish. Um, but when the but uh, when the wicked flourish, the city the city or the people groan. Now why? Why is that? It's obvious enough, right? But to unpack it some, and this is you know Tim Keller. I've heard him. Uh, I've heard him unpack it, and so I'm just stealing it from him. But one way he says it is: Look, um, when when the righteous rise, the righteous rising are like like the tide rising. When the righteous rise, all boats rise. Everybody around them benefits when they benefit. Because why? Because they're righteous. Because one of the um, one of the things that righteous people do is that they they tend to people around them. They're not curved in on themselves. They're not they're not stepping on other people to get to where they want to go. They give. The righteous give. They're generous and they're looking out for other people constantly and they're serving. And they're blessing. I mean, when you read the book of Job, that's one of the beautiful, one of the many beautiful passages in that very hard book. I can't remember exactly where it is. Is when Job is talking about how he would provide in his life. He was a super rich, super, quote, successful. I hate the fact that in America today we use that word successful. And it almost just exclusively means they make a lot of money. That shows you where our, our idols are. But either way, super successful. Job was very wealthy. But... He didn't use his wealth just on himself. He used it to bless other people. He He's like, I never, it's amazing when you go back and read the passage. I wish I could, it just popped into my head now, so I don't have the reference, but read the whole book to come across it. It's amazing when you read it to be able to say the things that he did. It shows how truly righteous he was. He was like, I never passed a single person that was unclothed without clothing them. You know, nobody was ever in Job's presence unclothed for long. He provided for them. He fed the hungry. He cared for the weak. He defended 
the weak and the poor and the downtrodden. Um, you know, I've never lusted after a woman is one of the other things he says. Amazing stuff. So anyway, um, it's a mark of the righteous that when they do well, everyone around them knows we're going to benefit. Isn't that cool? Um, that's just the way righteous people work. By contrast, the wicked suck things into themselves. It's like I, I think of C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters where he, he's quoting, he, he's speaking as a devil. And, the, and he says, you know, the enemy, and he's talking, the, the enemy means God because he's speaking like he's a devil. He says, the enemy, um, the enemy, he says, whereas we see people as fuel, as food, we consume them to get stronger ourselves. The enemy sees um, people as sons. And what do you do with your sons and daughters? If you're anything close to a loving parent, you get, you're glad to give everything you have to them if it means blessing. All that you have is theirs. All that you have is theirs. That's what the father in the prodigal son parable in Luke 15 says to his wayward, rebellious, idiotic, sinful, evil son that's shamed him. Oh, sorry. No, he, he says it to the second son, doesn't he? Who's rebellious in his own way. He thinks the father, he really hates, he doesn't love the father at all. He just sees himself as a slave and thinks he's just been working for the place in the father's house. And the father says, all that I have is yours. All that I have is yours. That's how every parent feels. Um, the wicked, though, will, will exploit and, and do anything they can to get ahead. And they will do it at the expense of other people. They see people as, as fodder. Um, as fuel for them to draw to to fuel their drive. I was listening to um, a podcast a series of podcasts that's just come out that's about the demise of a certain group of churches and the head pastor um, that did a lot of good, but also went off the rails. Unfortunately, is it so easy to do any anywhere? But certainly when you have that kind of spotlight for that long enough, and your power goes unchecked. But he he was quoted as saying uh, to a group of leaders. There are, or there are a string, a string of dead bodies behind us. And he's talking about like being on a bus or something. You know, we've, we've run over a bunch of people and he says, hopefully by the end, there'll be a whole mountain of dead bodies. He says, God willing, by the end, there'll be a whole mountain of dead bodies. And that's just, I mean, that's, I was, I actually got like cold chills when I read, when I heard that I was driving on the highway and uh, it's just, and I'm not saying that person is wicked, but that, that's a wicked thing. That's a wick, that's an evidence of wickedness right there. Um, but the righteous, the righteous, when they do well, um, everybody else does well. The city rejoices. But when the wicked do well, they know that, that everybody else is going to suffer because it's going to be at people's expense. And so that's really what you see here. Why did, why did I spend five minutes on that? Because that's, it's a long passage. Acts 27 is the most detailed by far, apparently, according, according to some classicists, it's the most detailed um, record of the workings of an ancient ship in the whole of classical literature. And I'm quoting there from a scholar and I'll go into more detail there in, at the end of our, our time. But um, it's it's Luke's account who was with Paul on this journey. Um, it's Luke's account of uh, Paul being transferred from Caesarea, which is just northwest of Jerusalem on the, on the coast of the, the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, all the way from Caesarea, which I've been to, the ruins anyway, to Rome. And it's, it's mostly um, an account of them being at sea 
the last part of it is, or close to the last part of it, is them being on the island of Malta for three months where they get shipwrecked, and then they go from Malta to Rome. And all the whole time, both both it, on the ocean where they almost they almost lose the ship and their lives, uh, and and also on the island of Malta, in both cases in different under different circumstances, which I'll just unpack briefly. Um, Paul's presence, the presence of a righteous man, a godly man who's on fire for the Lord, on fire for King Jesus, and full of the Holy Spirit. And as we've seen in the past, doing everything he can, every action, every word, with every chain, with every misfortune, with every mis- misrepresentation. He's more than two years now into being misrepresented for these minor, minor things that are actually n- never happened in the first place. He's simply saying, I believe everything that the Jewish scriptures have always pointed to. And I'm trying to help everyone else, Jew and Gentile alike, believe them. And I've been imprisoned for two plus years because of it. Um, but he, he's not resentful. He's using every opportunity where he goes up in front of people and has to give his defense to preach the gospel. And he's enjoining people come to Christ. He's not just saying, hey, here's the gospel. Here's what I believe. He's saying it's personal to him. Jesus came to save you. Will you come to him? I want you to be just like I am, except for maybe not bound in chains. And so we see this righteous man, Paul, as he's being transported from Caesarea to Rome. And everybody that he's with gets blessed. And in fact, lives get saved. People get healed. And in the first bit of the story, um, to shorten it, and, and Luke gives so many interesting details, and I'm not going to belabor it. You can go read the passage. Um, but uh, and, he gets, and you can tell they're eyewitness details, by the way. And I'll finish. I'll finish with a quote about that. But um, basically, the crew would have been they they get blown off course in this storm after September 14th in that part of the Mediterranean, there are things called nor'easters, northeasters. And there are these violent winds that come up because of uh, weather patterns that merge between from September 14th, um, really until November, mid November. And after mid November, you really, there was no sailing to be done at all, but they, it's about October. It's 80, 59. It's October something right after um, the day of atonement. And um, it's late enough in the year that it's getting dangerous. And Paul says, we should really we should really stay at port. We should not try to seek another larger harbor. Um, it's not it's not right. I have a sense that things are going to go wrong. And, and they the ship experts and the ship owner overrule him and they get they go and they get blown off course. And for two weeks, they don't eat. They throw grain overboard. There are no stars because the storm is such that they can't see any of the. The, uh, the heavenly lights, which they used, of course, to they didn't have they didn't have the stuff we do today. They, they that's what they used to figure out where they were and where they needed to go. And so they did. They were just adrift, just being blown about. They thought we could be in the middle of the Mediterranean. And indeed, they were. Um, but Paul is visited and he says by an angel assuring him that you will, as he has been assured even by Jesus himself in the past, you will get to Rome. You will preach. You must preach about the freedom that's on offer in Jesus Christ, the gospel, to those in Rome. He knows he's going to get there, and because of his presence, everyone will be saved, you see? And he he doesn't just, and this is the second kind of lesson in this text, which we've looked at before in, in previous chapters, he doesn't just therefore say, look, I'm going to get to Rome, so I'm going to sit back as a prisoner on this ship, being transported, and know that we're going to be okay. He there, Knowing that he has to get to Rome, 
he therefore does everything he can to enjoin um, people on board, the centurion that's in charge of him and others, and say, look, we, I know that, hey, he, he can't resist the uh, I told you so, and F.F. Bruce, a commentator, has a great line on that. He says, um, let's see if I can find it here. He says, hmm. Sorry. It's 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 worth me taking a few seconds to find. Um, yeah, he said he says we appreciate Paul's inability to avoid saying, "I told you so." <laughs> That's so British. F. F. Bruce is, was a Brit, uh, English by the name. I or uh, maybe Scots. I haven't ever thought about that. He thought of Manchester. Either way, he says we appreciate Paul's inability to avoid saying, "I told you so." But he now proves a tower of strength to his despairing shipmates. Everyone thinks they're going to die. Paul says, look, I told you, you should have listened to me. You can't avoid doing that. It's okay. Uh, but look, we're not going to die. Trust me. I've, I had an angel visiting me last night said we're going to get there. Um, but here's what we have to do. And so he stands up there. He directs. He hopes he's the man in a crisis. You want to know how someone really, what really, how they, what's really in them, what their metal, M-E-T-T-L-E is? Put them in a crisis. You see Abraham, and F.F. Bruce mentions this, you see Abram, before he became Abraham, um, charge after, between age, he's been in his 80s probably, between age 75 and 100, his his nephew Lot, who's taken the best land for himself, is uh, is captured by these kings and run up north, and he he takes 318 men trained for war, and have grown up and been born in his own house. Think about how rich that he must have been. He had thousands of people under his charge. He takes these men, and he's in his 80s, and he, he charges up dozens and dozens, perhaps even over 100 miles, um, chases down these kings, grabs his nephew. He's not going to let him die um, and, and saves a bunch of people in the process and brings brings them back to safety and doesn't even take payment for it, even though he's off, it's offered to him. Um, that's Abram in a crisis. That's a righteous man also blessing those around him. That's what that's what righteous people do. Um, and so Paul shines in this crisis. He offers hope. He's a beacon of hope, it's giving these men words of hope in this literal blackness without any stars shining where they're being wave tossed. And um, and then again, a little a little bit later on in the narrative, um, men try to escape. And it turns out you kind of have to know a little bit more about it um, from commentaries and stuff. But it, the men who are trying to escape in a little ship, once they do run ashore on Malta, um they're sailors. They're the sailors. They're, most of the people on board are prisoners, and they're probably, scholars think, um, they're probably uh, got the death sentence on them. They're probably going to be delivered to Rome, to it, the meat grinder that it had become um, in Imperial Rome. It, a lot of people were needed to for the bread and circuses, and they might have been delivered over to fight in the Colosseum and, and die at the hands of gladiators or animals. Um, but Paul says, well, if those sailors go, then then we cannot be saved. The, the Lord told me not a hair of your head or anyone on this ship shall be harmed. And so we have to do everything we can to keep that from to keep that word to be that to keep that word that God gave me. Everyone has to be preserved. We all have to survive together. There are 276 men on board. Luke t- keeps t- keeps scrutinous, uh, scrutinizing punctilious detail. And so. Again, there's an instance of Paul um, not just saying, I'm going to be fine. I'm, at least I'm going to get to Rome. He makes sure that everyone survives, even these prisoners. And, uh, and, so, and, and also, if the sailors 
had gone into the smaller ship and rowed ashore, then they, they, uh, most of the people on the boat were prisoners. The prisoners probably wouldn't have been able to do what it took to get the, the, sh- um, the ship to where it needed to be. But the sailors, uh, so the sailors were needed, um, in that capacity and keeping them on board possibly meant that, that everyone else was saved as well. So, so Paul's constantly working to give hope. He's hearing from the Lord. He knows he's getting to Rome. Um, to to direct and and quarterback and to make sure that everybody gets ashore safely onto Malta and they do, and then again um, lives are saved because there's this little funny little episode where you know, and this is just sort of a, a sidebar, but um, Luke he uses this quiet humor to uh, to convey this scene where they are trying to get warm after they they're all waterlogged from from being shipwrecked on the shore and at the beach and. Um, their, their boats broke, broken up and, and, um, they, they swim ashore and they, each of them grabs a plank of, of part, parts of the boat that are being broken up and they, they make a fire on shore and they're warming themselves by the fire and the locals start to gather around. And cause of course there's this Roman ship that's been, that's been shipwrecked. And so it's a big deal. <clears throat> and the locals are around the fire looking at things. And then they see all these shipwrecked men and many of whom have chains on and stuff that are also around the fire and, and, uh, a viper, is warmed up by the fire. It was, it was, uh, a torpid to use FF Bruce's word. It was a torpid because of the cold. Again, it's October, um, a torpid snake, but the, the heat of the fire warmed it up. And all of a sudden it, it, uh, un, un, unfurled itself and bit lashed onto Paul's hand as he's putting a log onto the fire. And it's a, it's a viper. It's poisonous. It'll kill you. And the, the locals know that. And they, they say to themselves, this guy must be a murderer. The justice, the gods have, have, uh, he, he, he escaped the sea, but they've gotten them. He's paying for his dues now. And, uh, they watch him. No, nothing on Paul swells up. He just shakes off the, he knows he's going to Rome. He, kn- he knows he's going to Rome. He shakes off the, uh, the snake and, and keeps rocking and nothing happens to him. And so they move, the quiet humor is that they move from whispering about the fact that he must have been a murderer to immediately going, hang on. Again, it's an empirical thing. They, they watch, they observe. And nothing happens, even though a viper is just bitten him. So they go, wait, the evidence is showing us the opposite. This guy, maybe he's a god. So they start thinking he's a god. So it's, it's, it's kind of funny. Um, but Paul is simply, of course, a man on fire for the Lord and filled, filled with the Holy Spirit. And he's getting to Rome. He's on mission. And God's going to get him there. And so either way, the, the main point being that um, when, when the righteous rise, uh, the community rejoices. The righteous are a blessing to all around them. And that happens with Paul on the ship, but it also happens with Paul on Malta. And he immediately soon finds out that, um, they, the, the head man of the Island, his father, I believe it is. Um, I'm looking now his father, his father-in-law, uh, has dysentery and fever and is, and is in that sort of situation, probably on death's door. And Paul prays for him, lays hands on him, heals him. And then they get, the Island gets word of it. And a bunch of other people just like kind of happened with Jesus, a bunch of other people get word of what's happened and they bring all their sick to him and they're healed as well through the power of God, um, through Paul. And so, uh, <laughs> and, and you know what I'm doing here? Sorry, I should have mentioned this. I'm, I'm moving into, I'm last week was Acts 27. I, I was preaching in Austin and I didn't, I didn't do the notes for that lesson. And, um, but rather than asking, uh, Jake to, to, to record this message, I just thought this really, this really, moves into what our what is our text for this week which is 
um, this next week, which is Acts 28, the final chapter in Acts, verses 1 through 10. And then we'll finish, we'll finish the book next week. But, um, it's really the same message. So Acts 28 is, Acts 27 is Paul on the water. And then Acts 28 is when they get on to Malta and, um, what happens with the snake and then what happens with Publius, who's the main, main of the island and his father, um, being sick with fever and dysentery and then Paul laying hands on him, praying for him and, and him being healed. And then a bunch, everybody else, you know, gets healed too. And so, the same thing that happened on the water, lives were saved because of Paul, happens on Malta. Lives are saved and blessed and benefited uh, and improved because Paul's there. And so that's, that's it. Um, you know, the, I, I put it like this. The presence of good men is a blessing to all men. F.F. F. Bruce varies it. The presence of good men is a protection to a community. And, that, and we see that here with Paul. Um, we see it preeminently, and this is why we see it with Paul. He wasn't previously. You can't give Paul credit, right? He wouldn't give himself credit. Previously, he, he recounts in the chapter before this how he was full of raging fury. He was a murderer, an accomplice to murder at least, throwing people in prison, dragging them around by their hair, chaining people up. He was a damager, man, in the, with the best of intentions. With the best of intentions. Um People around him suffered, full of pride and anger. And now look at him, because he has Christ living in him. And who more embodies the truth that the presence of good men is a protection to a community or a blessing to all men than Jesus Christ? Than Jesus Christ, who literally gave his life for us. Um to save us, to bless us, to bring us back, not just to save us, but to bring us back in a relationship with our creator and our savior, with the lover of our souls, to make us children of the living God, to give us an eternal inheritance, to bring us into a new, to bring a new creation into us, and then to assure us that we will be forever citizens of a new creation that is, that is coming, that is here even now, that is growing, and that will never end. Um, and all sin and sadness and pain will be done away with, right? And so, in all because Jesus took our sin upon himself and hung on a cross for us and, and endured the wrath of God as, uh, as a propitiation, to use that theological term in Romans 3.25 and elsewhere, as a propitiation, as a wrath bearer for us, as a shield to block the just blow against our sin and rebellion um, in our place. And so, he, he is the ultimate picture, God himself, the son of God, Jesus Christ, of, of, of the, the truth that, that the presence of good men is a blessing to all men. That when Jesus, um, not only, you know, when, when the righteous rise, the city rejoices, Christ rose on a cross, which meant he was not, in a sense, not rising at all. He was plummeting. He was perishing. But his plummeting and perishing, even that he used to bless anyone who comes to him by faith. That is extraordinary. And that, uh, and Paul is a follower of Jesus Christ and filled with the presence of Jesus Christ. And he's given his life to Jesus. And because of that, he bears his characteristic. And we see that here manifest in Acts 27. And, and just to sort of leave us with this point that that is a charge for us. Are we... Is our presence a blessing to those around us? Is it a protection to our community? Is the fact that you're 
in your house a blessing to your house members, to your to your home, to your family, to those that you live with? Is it a blessing to your neighbors? Are you a blessing to your neighbors? Do they is there are their lives flourishing more? Are they better? Because are they richer? Are they more colorful? Are they more filled with hope? Um, with a promise of uh, of lasting meaning, and on and on it goes with life because of your presence. Or are you just are you just keeping to yourself and gathering all the blessings of the Lord for you? And I this is a huge challenge to me personally. I'm not really preaching at you. I'm more just unpacking the text and being challenged by it well, along with you, maybe. But Lord, that we could be a people, and I'm really praying now that we could be a people that um, our presence would be a huge boon, a huge blessing to every single person around us, a real protection to our community, to our in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, wherever we go, um, because because of Christ in us, because the reality of the gospel is sinking deeper and deeper. As Keller likes to say, is the, the penny is dropping deeper and deeper of the reality of the fact that God gave himself for our blessing to lift us up. Um, you know, would that it would be that we could leave such a mark on our communities, not just our neighborhoods, but our the areas that we are in, including shops and streets and cultures, that that if we were to be taken away, and then when we are one day taken away, that people would go, man, we miss that family, we miss that guy, we miss that girl. They were such a blessing. This community is different because of their presence, because of them. And I know people in our church who are like that. I really do. Individuals, families. I've seen in the past year this happen because of their lives, and I'm so pleased. And I'm so pleased with what God's doing through them and through through you. Um, and so I just pray that it continues. And um, sort of the last couple things here that um, I, I guess this is sort of past. I, I really should have gone from um, – from the proverb to to Paul to Jonah to Jesus, but Jonah, it's, it, was, it was Jake brought up in his notes, uh, I think uh, astutely that I hadn't really thought of this that that there could be an allusion to to Jonah to the Jonah account here, and that Jonah uh, was he was kind of the opposite of this. He was he wasn't he got on the sea and they were storm tossed, but they were storm tossed because of his rebellion because he was running from God's call, and he so he put the the sailors. He put their lives in danger, in jeopardy. And it was only once they threw him into the sea that things calmed down. Um, but, this, but despite Paul, God used Jonah despite himself to see these sailors saved. They sacrificed to the living God once they realized that, that, he, that Jonah is a devotee, a worshiper, a follower, a believer in Yahweh, the one true God, the creator. And once they, and he says, look, you got to throw me in because I've been running from him. And once they do, and the sea calms down, they realize, oh, he's the true God. And so these pagan sailors, they end up being shown to be more pious and, and um, more <laughs> more earnest and uh, more righteous in a sense than, than Jonah, which is part of the it's part of the charm of the book, the humility of the book. But then that happens again with the Ninevites, these horrible ancient Assyrian people that were known for being warlike and terrible. They would peel people's skin off. Um, off of them, they would flay them. They would uh, they would create mountains of little mountains of skulls with the people that they'd killed when they came into a city. Um, they would create mountains of skulls outside the city gates and stuff. But but um, which is why Jonah runs in the first place. He don't want he is not he knows God's merciful. He does not want to see God's mercy on these people. 
but uh, they end up being much quicker to repent. Jonah preaches a five a five word sermon, and it, there's no offer of hope in it. It's just, hey, in forty days, Jonah, Nineveh is going to burn, <laughs> and uh, it's five words in the Hebrew, and uh, it's the worst sermon ever. But God uses it to cause the entire city to turn from their sin, to repent, and to turn toward God. And God has mercy on them because that's what He is. He's a merciful God, and Jonah gets pissed. And that's how the book ends. Um, <laughs> but all that to say, I'm not preaching on Jonah here, that it's, it could be, this could be, um, I mean, Luke is quite clever, as well as being detailed and, and quite funny in some real subdued ways. And so he could be comparing this journey to that of Jonah and by, by relief, by contrast, showing that, you know, whereas Jonah endangered the lives of the sailors, Paul does the opposite. And that's what we do when Christ is in us. We we're a blessing um, to to those around us. As 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 F.F. F. Bruce said, again, we're a protection. We're a protection to a community. God will bless people around us because simply because of our presence. Don't we want that? Man, I want that. Whew. God, would you do that with us as a people? Um, and I guess just as I close, I don't know that it's appropriate. I mean, how long am I going here? Let's see. Um, 29 minutes. Good to close under 30. I'll just say that um, I won't I won't read this, but it's it's there's a guy uh, uh, that did. He's from Renfrew, Renfrewshire, Scotland, and he did uh, he was a, a, a sailor himself and did and, and a member of the Royal Society, a fellow of the Royal Society, which is the scientific, the highest scientific membership you could have in Britain at the time. Um, Newton was a member of the Royal Society, et cetera. And so he in in the winter of 1844 to 45 went to Malta and investigated closely the details of uh, Paul's voyage here as recounted by Luke and just realized that this, um, this is the absolutely history and it's the, and Luke had to have been with Paul, but it's the way it's written was it, it had to be, he calls him the, the work of a land lubber. The account by Luke had to be an account written by someone who is not a professional seaman because he says no sailor I'm quoting here. No sailor would have written in a style so little like that of a sailor. Not No man, not a sailor, could have written a narrative of a sea voyage so consistent in all its parts, unless from actual observation. And why do I finish with that? Because I just want to remind you, this is not a story. Not just a story. It's history. It happened. This really happened to Luke and Paul. And some even think that Luke and... Um, Aristarchus, his other companion here on the ship, were, uh, how did they get on board? They could have, they could have been disguised as, uh, as slaves of Paul, which actually would have raised the esteem of, of Paul in people's eyes, including the centurion. But, um, they, they were his companions and, and Luke, because of it, wrote down what happened to them. This is history. Paul made it to Rome. He continued to preach the gospel. Churches were planted. Disciples were made. The church continued to grow. So that by in 300 years, um, by the fourth century, it became the uh, it was endorsed as the official religion of the Roman Empire, which was both good and bad for the church, um, incidentally, and that continues to grow today. We're part of that. We are part of that. And so these lessons are for us. They're real. They matter. Christ is alive. Christ is reigning. He's working through things like shipwreck and through things like job loss and through things like COVID and through things like your neighbors. He's working in your work and your family, and good and bad that's happening to you. 
That's why we call ourselves Acts 29. We're part of an Acts 29 network of global churches. We are continuing the story, um, the history, until until Jesus returns. So uh, God bless you all.